Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week I've been thinking about this kid I met back when I was in college in Minneapolis. I met him through the Big Brothers Big Sisters program I volunteered with at the university YMCA. He really was a kid, seven, maybe eight years old. At the time, I was a college freshman, new to the city from a small town in Wisconsin. I was trying to find my path when I signed up. And yeah, I might have been trying to impress some girls in my dorm, too. I remember when the social worker handed over my little brother's address. She raved about a bakery across the street from his family's house. It was a newer place, one of the businesses catering to a kind of young professional that was beginning to move into the south side of the city. They had amazing croissants, she said. When I pulled up to the address, I saw a weathered old Victorian house, the white paint peeling off the siding. I was invited in and immediately found myself in a room with three generations of black women. They smiled. They said hello. Then, after a few awkward minutes, Mom brought my little brother out, and soon he and I were on our way to the local Y to play basketball. I remember him being full of questions and quick with observations. While shooting around, we talked about school, he loved math, he said, and my car, which he loved too. And he wanted to know about college life. I remember that. He also told me about his life at home. His aunt and his grandmother and some cousins lived with him and his mom in that old house. He didn't really know his dad, he said. They'd moved a lot. He said that too. I asked if his family went to the bakery across the street. He told me no. I was probably prying. I likely didn't know any better, but he didn't seem to mind. Every couple weeks, I would pull up, pick him up, and we'd usually go and play basketball and talk some more. Then one day I pulled up and the house was empty. I called that social worker at the Y. After a few days, she called back. Mom had been arrested on a drug charge, she said, and my little brother had been sent into foster care. I never saw him again. I think about him every once in a while, hopeful that he found his way, but knowing that even at such an early age, he faced challenges that were, to me, almost unimaginable. I thought of him a lot this summer, too as racial strife consumed Minneapolis following the police killing of George Floyd. And whenever I think of him, I also automatically think about that bakery. It's a place that I sometimes visit when I return to the city, and each time I look across the street at that old Victorian house, now bright with a fresh coat of paint. I think about the distance between my little brother's home and that fancy bakery back then and how that distance has only widened in the decades since. Gentrification has taken a firm hold on that neighborhood, and as I was reminded this summer, Minneapolis appears to be more divided than ever. This week I'm talking with Tarian Williamson, an associate professor at the University of Minnesota, about that divide, and how ignoring the life of black Midwesterners prevents us from understanding the problems at the core of our nation's racial crisis and recognizing the joy that persists in these communities despite that crisis. 
Then, later in the show, I'll bring Crosscut reporter Emily McCarty on to talk about the challenges facing college towns in the COVID era. And I've got a couple programming notes here. Next week, I'll be speaking with Ellie Mistal, the justice correspondent for The Nation. We'll be talking about the battle over the U.S. Supreme Court and whether packing the court is a good idea for Democrats. If you have questions for Ellie, email them to me at talks at crosscut.com. And don't forget our live event on October 28th. I'll be talking with Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wu Dunn about their latest book, which I'm reading right now, and it's good. For more information and to RSVP for that event, go to crosscut.com slash events. Okay, on with the show. I'm on now with Tarian Williamson. Tarian is an associate professor of African and African-American studies at the University of Minnesota. She is the author of Scandalize My Name, Black Feminist Practice and the Making of Black Social Life, and is the founding director of the Black Midwest Initiative. She's also the editor of a new anthology called Black in the Middle, an anthology of the Black Midwest. The collection, which is largely made up of poems and personal essays, centers the lived experiences of Black Americans who live in the Midwest and the Rust Belt. The result is a picture that is both more vibrant and more complicated than the one often presented in mainstream American media. Williamson is a part of that picture. She grew up in Peoria, Illinois, which is best known as the hometown of comedian Richard Pryor. She revisits her hometown and its most famous resident in her own contribution to the collection. She writes, If you believe the rhetoric about the inner city, which would suggest that financial insecurity and boarded up homes and broken down schools and food deserts and the criminal element and chronic joblessness means that we don't have joy here or that we don't have self-love here or that we don't have fellowship here, or that we don't have scholarship here, or that we don't have safety here, then, as the wino said to the junkie in a certain Richard Pryor skit, that shit done made you null and void. Tarion, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here. So this anthology is really fantastic. Just some really strong writing in here, stories that I've never heard. I, I learned a great deal. And I'm from the Midwest, so um, uh, I, I really appreciate it. So thank you for that. Could you just tell me why it's important in this particular moment that we have a better understanding of the Black experience in the Midwest? I think it's important because in a moment in which the country at least large swaths of the country are really reckoning with the meaning of social justice and really reckoning with terms like anti-Blackness, for instance. And so much of what has occurred in recent years, the, the sort of unrest that we've been seeing in recent years has occurred within the Midwest. It's important for us to understand sort of the conditions, the possibility for that unrest to occur and the sort of historical precedent which sort of creates, enables it to occur. Understanding that, I think, is is deeply, deeply important. Okay, so let's get into 
the stories here. Sure. You know, this collection is made up of a lot of different types of writing. There's poetry. There's some really great poetry in here. There's oral history. There's a little bit of experimental sort of storytelling, and there are personal essays. And really, the personal essays, I, I was really taken by them. I think that they're really they they really feel like the kind of the heart of this um, of this work, and they're each unique. Um, you you know you say that every town in the Midwest is unique, and uh, we make a mistake when we sort of paint them with the same brush. Right. But they do have certain things in common. There are themes that keep popping up in these stories. I can think of a few things: rivers. So there's a lot of a lot of river cities in here, and a lot of relationship with water. Um, there's manufacturing, auto plants, like really, you know, that blue collar work. And then, of course, there's segregation that is right. runs through um, just about every every piece of this anthology. So while recognizing that every city is unique and every experience is unique, how do these common elements shape the Midwestern experience for black Americans? I think it's absolutely right that there are commonalities and there are important commonalities, which sort of is why it's important to talk about the, the Midwest at all, because industry is so significant to to the story of the Midwest for why it looks the way it does. And industry is also really important to the conversations about why um, so many black communities are under resourced now, why so many black communities are in some ways dilapidating physically, like literally like buildings falling apart. Why so many communities are economically distressed because they are tied to what's happening with industry and the leaving of industry within our community. So that absolutely is one of the things that binds um, so many of the stories together. And then that is also connected up with things like segregation, right? So the way in which industry and manufacturing oper operate are actually deeply tied in with race. Last hired, first fired, for instance. And part of the impetus for this book and part of the impetus for the Black Midwest Initiative are to talk about the correlation between those things. Talk about the correlation between manufacturing and industry and the leaving of manufacturing and industry and how that affects racialized communities. And it turns out that all of that then does have something to do with rivers, right? Because so much, <laughs> you know, the reason why Peoria gets built up in the way in which it does is because it's on the Illinois River. Mm -hmm. um, and its proximity to water and to the river is what um, makes it sort of one of these sites of heavy manufacturing. It's reason why places, factories like Caterpillar end up there, all right? And so the relationship to, to, to water is not accidental either, to rivers mm. is not accidental either. And what I find interesting personally, which is sort of related to this and sort of not in thinking about water and rivers is part of the kind of narrative around the Midwest and Black Midwesterners in particular is about a, a kind of lack of a kind of cosmopolitanism that you have on the coast, for instance. Right. And there's some ways in which I think about that as being connected up to one's capacity to be near like bodies, large bodies of water, like oceans, mm -hmm. <laughs> for, for instance. Yeah. And so um, like what it means to be landlocked, I think, has something to do with all of this 
um, as well, right? To, to not have access to things like oceans, to not have access to things like passports, um, to not be cosmopolitan, right? All of those things I think are related to each other. You know, the thing that this collection also does, and one of the things that many of these stories have in common is a look back on a time in the Midwest when black communities were, I mean, where I would use a term like cosmopolitan. I mean, and, and you know, they, these were these were sustainable black communities where, you know, there was a sense of ownership. Um, where there was, uh, where there was sort of uh, prosperity. I, I really, you know, my mind goes to uh, Black Wall Street in Tulsa, which I think mm. that many more Americans are aware of now after uh, the Watchmen sort of put it center stage. And I'm thinking about an essay by Michelle Johnson, which goes into great detail about the Black community in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I'm just thinking about these spaces and how in this anthology they they are spoken so much of in the past tense and of course you know gentrification other forms of displacement have changed many of these spaces have dismantled them in some cases and i wonder what is the state of black space in the midwest right now that comes up a lot right the kinds of storytelling that michelle does really beautifully in that essay um is i think um, many of us have have just lived it. We've witnessed it, right? When I go back home, I can just see, it's very clear to me the ways in which disinvestment has occurred. But I also, and it's always been that way. It was never sort of not that way. It was, it's always been an under-resourced community, but it, it becomes really visible on the landscape, the ways in which that disinvestment has, has deepened and has further eroded um, sort of the, the infrastructure of the community. And mm. so it looks like the kind of vacant and dilapidating buildings that you see in, for instance, in like ruined porn, right, that you see. It's the schools that, want, you know, the elementary school that I went to, which is this huge, once very beautiful building that is now this this big, scary sort of hulk of, 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 of brick um, in the middle of a street. That was once a really thriving community. It, it hasn't been erased, but it's at least been displaced to some other place. <laughs> hmm. And so I think that sense of loss or displacement consequently shows up quite a bit in the book. And, you know, maybe some of that is generational, but there is very clearly something that's happening in our communities. You know, the South side of Peoria looks like the West side of Chicago, which looks like, you know, a lot of what Gary looks like these older factory towns, um, it's really clear that there's been a, a formidable amount of displacement that shows up in in the communities and really in ways that can be really painful to see, even at the same time that when I go home, for instance, there's still a lot of joy there because I remember, you know, the parade that happened down X street, or I remember sort of hanging out in this park with my friends, right? Like there's mm -hmm. still the joy of those places and those memories, but it's still a hard thing to, to see the ways in which the community has um, fallen into a lot of dis disrepair. And I think you see that in so many communities, so many communities throughout the Midwest. And that's part of what I think people um, are responding to in some ways in, in mm. some of the essays. 
It's a difficult line that you're walking, right? Um, to really be aware of this disinvestment, sort of the degradation of these particular communities, while also elevating this idea that that there's there that there is joy here that there is that there is complexity here that it's not all mm -hmm. as you said you know ruined porn and i wonder for you what piece in this collection to you really sums it up that tension between recognizing the difficulty while celebrating the joy in many ways, when, I, when I'm talking about disinvestment, I'm talking about structural disinvestment. I'm talking about infrastructure mm. as much as anything. So yeah. while buildings are deteriorating and while spaces that used to be there are no longer there, the people are still here. Right? The people are still finding places to be together. The joy in that community, a community that is richer than and more than any of these buildings continues to exist, even if it gets displaced into other kinds of places. Mm -hmm. So that's where so much of the sort of joy and fellowship lies, I think. And the piece that immediately comes to mind when you ask that question for me is actually a poem by Jamal May, um, the there, there Are Birds Here. You know, Jamal is from Detroit. Which, you know, is the sort of epicenter of ruin porn, right? Sure. And Jamal is saying in that in that poem, like, like I'm saying there are birds here. And I don't mean that as a metaphor. I'm saying there are birds here. <laughs> right. And, and that that means something. And what I'm saying is that there is beauty here. And not just the kind of um, beauty in the ruins that folks from the outside want to come in and consume in particular kinds of ways, but that there is there is life here. There is life that continues to be lived, even in the midst of what sort of national media or outsiders or whomever might talk about as a kind of degradation. There is still something we're celebrating here and there is still nature here and there is still love and joy here. And I think that short poem really does such a powerful job to me of summing up that idea. Yeah, it's a great poem. I, I read it three times. It was just so, yeah, because you're right. It does, it is very literal in a way, and yet like mm -hmm. so beautifully figurative at the same time. Mm -hmm. One of the earlier pieces in this collection also is Tara Conley's piece, where she writes about her hometown in Ohio. And, you know, one of the things that she says in there that that kind of struck me when we're talking about sort of the media's portrayal of uh, the Midwest, is that for the last four years, white Trump voters have been overrepresented, overrepresented in national news media whenever we talk about the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a contemporary take on a longstanding problem of the incomplete story that we tell of America. And at the same time, I feel conflicted here, you know, being a being a journalist and kind of you know, following where the story is, knowing that these Trump voters are transforming our country to what end is mm -hmm. a topic for another conversation, maybe. Mm -hmm. But is it wrong to focus so much on them? It's not wrong to attend to the Trump voter. I think, one, we can't assume that the Trump voter, um, the Trump voter is not always white. Right. Um, right. For 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 one thing, and there's a sort of really complicated narrative there. I think 
The other issue, I was talking to someone recently from the initiative. Her stance was for as much as the narrative in 2016 was about, you know, the election going the way that it did because of white Trump voters, that also part a significant part of the story is the disaffection of black voters who were disaffected with the DNC, disaffected with politics in general, and who were frustrated and upset by the lack of awareness to the kinds of things that are happening in our communities, particularly, and also within the Midwest. And that, that, that form of being disaffected, which got talked about as the Trump voter, was very often seen to be configured as white and male, was also like, it might not have resulted in Black people en masse voting for Trump. But it still had something to do with the outcome. That was part of what mm, she yeah. was she was saying to me. And I think that complicates the narrative in ways that that are really important. That at the same time that the middle America, sort of what middle America is, that that narrative seems to operate under the assumption that the DNC or Democrats sort of forgot about blue collar laborers. Like the sort of assumption there is that too much attention was paid to like people of color, right? Mm. And so it, it's this, right. this sort of double erasure that's happening there. It's like that sort of extra attention that's allegedly being paid to people of color, while at the same time we're in the Midwest hollering and yelling and saying, but wait a minute, nobody's paying attention to our needs and what's happening here. And so no, I don't think it's wrong for there to be attention paid to the quote unquote Trump voter. But I think enlarging the narrative requires more work. And it, it also means that you can't make boogeyman out of particular people. It forces us to have to sort of think about sort of not only the role of the angry white male laborer, but also the role of like, allegedly progressive, allegedly liberal Democrats. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, you know, there's some blame to go around. And if we're going to really talk about the conditions under which we're living, I think we have to get at that too. It occurs to me that what you were speaking about just a few minutes ago about the disinvestment from these black communities in the Midwest, you know, that, that there is some version of that that's driving a lot of the disenchantment with politics in general and it's driving some people right. to Trump. It's driving other people away from the polls. Um, so it mm -hmm. is this sort of common force, but it really impacts different communities at different levels. Right. Precisely. Um, and if anything, the, the black communities that your essayists are talking about, that they have, have lived and been a part of and know the histories of, are feeling the impacts more deeply than these so-called white Trump voters and mm -hmm. that there could be more attention paid to what's happening in those communities. We're frustrated about some of the very same things that the, the right. alleged Trump voter is frustrated about. We, that don't mean we're going to go vote for Trump <laughs> because most yeah. of us are not, right? We make different decisions about what that means. And that's because race and the way that Trump is negotiating or leveraging race means particular things for us. But, but the loss of jobs, mechanization, those kinds of things, um, the outsourcing of jobs, reverse migration, all of those things deeply affect our communities as well. You know, one of the things that you um, 
mention in the book, and I and I, I believe it comes up a couple of times, maybe in a couple of other essays, is are are the these lists of best cities and worst mm-hmm. cities. So you mm-hmm. have the wor- U.S. Mm-hmm. News and World Report list of the best cities to live in, and then you have the twenty four seven Wall Street, or is that who puts out the list of mm-hmm. yep. the worst cities for Black mm-hmm. Americans? Mm-hmm. And what is so interesting is that. Is that there is that there really are these two different worlds within a single city. You talk about Peoria. Peoria was on the bottom of the worst list. And maybe it doesn't show up on the best, you know, the best places to live list. But then you have Minneapolis, mm-hmm. which is number nine on the worst place places for black Americans to live, mm-hmm. and number six on the best places for Americans to live in US News and World Report. Mm-hmm. And so when George Floyd is killed and that horrible video comes out and people see it and they see Minneapolis, they think Minneapolis is a good place to live. How could this happen in Minneapolis? But really what your book makes clear is that there are two very different worlds happening in, in these metropolitan areas. The Twin Cities, I want to say in the last iteration of the list, they might have been even as high as... Um, sort of number four on like the, the mm. worst, the worst of list. But the Twin Cities always show up high on the livability indexes. Like this is a great city yeah. um, where one should live all the time, like very high on those lists. Um, and then Peoria was recently named, I think Forbes or one of those places did a list um, of like the best cities to live in post pandemic. And Peoria showed up on that list. Again, at the same time that Peoria shows up as one of the worst places to be a black person, where it has the like number one highest rate of school segregation in the country. And so as a person who has lived in these communities, I live in North Minneapolis now. Um, I'm from Peoria. I lived on the south side of Chicago when I was an undergrad. I worked on the west side of Chicago. It's hard for me not to walk away with the feeling that like what it means to be a livable city or what it means to be an all-American city, which is an award that Peoria received in like 2013, you know, for like inclusive civic engagement. So, you know, what it means to be an all-American city or a livable city is to be like necessarily hostile to Black life. And when you don't include the narratives of communities like mine and Black people and other marginalized populations, when we're talking about the Midwest, to the extent we talk about the Midwest at all, it just totally includes that experience. And so the question becomes livable for whom? Who becomes the sort of central characters for whom we talk about like the best of and the most livable and who gets erased? And those lists, however important they may or may not be in the grand scheme of things, they do a particular kind of work that Black folks are used to happening to us all the time, which is a kind of erasure from consideration. (laughs) We're not being considered when you're making these lists of what is livable because there's no way you can include the Twin Cities if you're looking at the kinds of disparities that exist amongst people of African descent and white folks in the cities, right? You would have Mm. to sort of calibrate the list very differently. And when those lists continue to perpetuate, it's a a certain kind of myth-making, you know? It's no wonder people think, um, you know, that all that happens in the Midwest is like corn and steel and 
blue collar white folks and cheese. (laughs) Right. Right? And then to the extent that the black folks in the Midwest get talks about it's Detroit and Chicago and in Chicago it's gun violence and Detroit it's like it's dilapidation. (laughs) Right. You know, until a water crisis happens in Flint and then maybe we're talking about Flint too. Right. But the narrative has to be deeper and longer or otherwise you end up with the very thing that I feel like you're gesturing toward. There's there's just a particular kind of vacuum that exists. And part of what I think this book is trying to do and what the black Midwest is trying to do is fill the vacuum in some ways. All right. That's Tarian Williamson. She is the editor of a new anthology called Black in the Middle, an anthology of the black Midwest. You can get that book at any place you buy good books. Tarian, Thank you so much for coming on the show and for giving us a little bit of perspective. And uh, thank you for putting together this collection. It really is excellent. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. Hi, my name is Amanda Pyle, and I work on the data and analytics team at Cascade Public Media. As the audience data analyst, I help the journalists in the Crosscut newsroom understand who is reading, watching, and listening to their stories. But I don't just analyze our audience, I'm part of our audience. I stay up to date on the latest CrossCut headlines, I listen to our podcasts, I check out our online videos, and I subscribe to our email newsletters. I also donate. The journalism created by the CrossCut newsroom, including this podcast, is free. But this work does have very real costs. As a nonprofit news source, we count on support from our readers, viewers, and listeners to continue producing the stories and conversations that keep you informed and engaged with your community. If this work is valuable to you and you would like to support our journalism, go to crosscut.com backslash donate right now. Okay, back to the show. I'm on now with Emily McCarty. Emily is based in Yakima and covers the region of Washington State to the east of the Cascade Mountain Range. As part of CrossCut's Facing the Fallout series, Emily took a look at the impact that the pandemic and the restrictions put in place to fight it have had on the towns that rely on campus life to fuel their culture and their economy. Emily, welcome to CrossCut Talks. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. So the story, you you start out in Pullman, Washington, which is home to Washington State University, uh, the Cougs. And can you tell me in a normal year, what does Pullman look like on a Saturday afternoon in October? Yeah, so it's not a normal looking Saturday afternoon like in cities that aren't like Pullman, right? There's crimson and gray everywhere. You don't see any other colors. Um, There's RVs, they're all tailgating, everyone's drinking and loud and boisterous, everyone's super excited um, for the huge WSU football games, of course, and there's people milling around, they're all walking around in their colors and their Coug gear, and yeah, it's just like nothing like you've ever seen unless you visited Pullman during football season. So what does it look like in Pullman now? 
Right. So obviously with COVID, everything has changed towns um, across the world, but it's really made a huge difference for Poland and WSU because they're severely restricting housing to 15% capacity just for students who, who absolutely need to be there out of necessity, you know, don't have housing anywhere else. The football games have been canceled. They're all online classes, except again for severe necessity. Um, and they've been that way since spring break um, after Inslee's stay-at-home order, and they ordered classes all online uh, as of last school year after spring break. Um, so, you know, students are still there. They're living in off-campus housing, or those very few that are on campus. But, you know, I, I talked to Bob Cady, who owns the Coog Bar, which is a staple. It's been in Pullman since 1932. Um, and he said, you know, the foot traffic, he's counted it before um, in a day, you know, which can go over the thousand. And, you know, now it's it can be a dozen or, you know, under a hundred. So it's, hmm. it's drastically changed the way his business looks just from looking out his windows. Hmm. Well, you talked to another business owner named Tony Poston, and I thought it was really interesting what he had to say just about not only how this is impacting his business, but how it's impacting his life. Can you tell us a little bit about Tony? Yeah, so Tony described a really interesting scene to me. So he has spare bedrooms in his house in Pullman that he names after his friends who are alumni. He went to WSU. He's a Coug. Um, and they would come on the weekends a lot from Seattle and stay in the bedrooms that were named after them. I mean, this football <laughs> season is a huge deal to people like Tony. They would come over and go to the football games together. You know, he told me how he'd walk through all the tailgaters. He'd walk through town. He'd go to the Coog and get a beer. And then he would end up at his uh, merch store. So his his business is College Hill Custom Threads, and he does collegiate apparel, among other things. Um, and he would go to a store. He would see all the alumni that he went to school with, see all the new students, all the parents. So his life has completely changed. You know, his friends aren't coming over. They're not staying in the house because of COVID. Um, his brick and mortar, he only has one. It closed. Um, it was on campus to sell all that merch, uh, all that Coog gear and apparel, and that closed. Obviously, there was no one on campus. So it's completely changed changed. Also, his bottom line, obviously, um, when I talked to him, he said he's down one million for, for the year for 2020. And just to kind of get a sense, he said, you know, football and parents weekends alone can bring in 300,000 that is lost um, this year because he said parents weekends are huge. Um, you know, the football season, obviously. And he's just he, that people aren't coming in. So other than football games, you know, he got a lot of people coming in for those special alumni weekends and all that money is lost to him now. So WSU is not the only campus in your reporting. You also talk to people at Central Washington University in Ellensburg and, and Western Washington University in Bellingham. Is it the same scene in those places as in Pullman? I would say Pullman has ha taken a, a more drastic hit. Central Washington University in Ellensburg, students, faculty, and staff make up around 75% of the entire town's population. But they are unusual in that they are doing hybrid classes. So they're doing in-person classes as well as online. Um, about half of their on-campus housing is going to be filled up. So while they're doing social distancing in the dorms, about 2,000 of the 4,000 beds are going to be filled up with students. Um, so it's looking a little different for Ellensburg. They're having more of the students come back to live in housing and to take those classes in person. 
And for Western Washington University in Bellingham, students make up less than 20% of the town's population. So when I talk to businesses there, they're definitely taking a hit and they're seeing about a third in the normal amount of dorms compared to last year, Um, but they're also doing online classes. But because their student population makes up a smaller portion of their population of Bellingham, they're not taking a huge of a hit as Pullman is, which is really kind of seeing devastating results. Okay, so so we know you've given a really good overview of what the kind of the current economic landscape is in these towns. You know, the hope is that at some point we can return to some semblance of normalcy. You know, there will be a vaccine. Students will be able to be in class again. Football will um, continue. But what are the long range economic impacts here? How is this? single season or single year changing the outlook that the business owners and uh, the people in these towns have. Yeah, and just to provide a little bit of context in general for things, what things look like for for restaurants, for example. So I talked to the Washington Hospitality Association, and their CEO predicted that um, 35% of full-service restaurants are going to go out of business in the next 12 months. So for and that's And that's in, like, across the board throughout the state. That is across the country, right? Um, So I was talking to him specifically about um, a restaurant called The Red Pickle in Ellensburg, which is a a great little startup that started in a a red truck, which his kids called The Red Pickle. That's how it got its name and, (laughs) you know, went on up to a full service restaurant um, in a brick and mortar. But, you know, that's really scary to think about a third of all restaurants going out of business. And for college towns that really depend on a lot of traffic from... Parents, especially coming in out of town, like what I heard in Pullman and alumni coming in, you know, they go to the bars, they're on vacation when they come into town, they go out to restaurants and eat. And to think that all those restaurants, a third, are going to potentially go out of business without, you know, more federal assistance in the next year is is really scary. And, you know, another interesting business I talked to was um, Holly Huffman is in Bellingham, and she's a city council member as well as a small business owner. And she owns a live venue called The Shakedown, um, Mm -hmm. as well as a a bar and a pinball lounge, which is a lot of people know called The Racket. Um, But she's at 20 percent of normal sales. And, you know, she's part of a, a national independent venue association, NEVA. And they're actually trying to pass legislation because they estimate 90 um, percent of all their members will permanently shut down if they don't get more federal assistance. Um, so, you know, Holly is, is pretty terrified. You know, she talks about how important music is to her life and to the students there going to live shows and how important that is culturally to have independent venues in small towns like that. Um, And, you know, she's completely shut down. They're doing bar food to go. But as we know, that's not, you know, there's not a lot of desire for bar food to go. She's really struggling at 20% of her sales. And a lot expressed to me without a next wave of federal assistance, you know, whether it's more money um, for the economic injury disaster loans, the EIDL or the Paycheck Protection Program or other forms of grants or loans, they expressed real concern. They were pretty scared. You know, they said community help in the form of gift cards is great and it's heartwarming, but that doesn't really make a big difference to their bottom line. They really need large amounts of money to pay those bills coming in the forms of federal assistance. Um, You know, I talked to businesses who talked about there's regional economic loans, but they don't have a lot of money. You know, that might be 
1,000, 2,000, 3,000 bucks. Hmm. Um, so they all really expressed a need for federal assistance. And basically they don't think they can stay open, the ones that I spoke to, without federal assistance. It's too expensive to run a restaurant when you have, you know, 20% of sales. Um, you know, as we know, restaurant being in the hospitality industry is scary enough as a business owner, a small business owner. And they were really scared to not know what's coming next in terms of federal relief. So all this pain and economic contraction is has a purpose, right? Which is to... Um, contain the virus. And I wonder, you said that, you know, students in Pullman are returning. I think the estimate was 60 to 70 percent have returned to town, even though their classes are online. You have some, you know, um, uh, students returning to these other towns because they're having uh, some in-person classes. But I wonder, are the students doing their part? Are they following the public health guidelines here? Yeah, and I I should have brought up the article. I saw a great article recently about how we're really blaming students and parties. But really, it's not a lot their fault. You know, a lot of students are working in hospitality industry and they have roommates. They can't afford rent in a college town on their own. And, you know, students are, while we're seeing, seeing student transmission in college towns, it's because it makes up a large portion of their population. So we really got to look at relativity when it comes to, you mm. know, kind of pointing fingers at these students who are, working, you know, minimum wage jobs where a lot of people are coming in. You don't wear a mask when you come in to eat and drink, right? You're, a lot of those people are getting exposed because they aren't wearing masks like, you know, in a grocery store where you're required to wear them. Um, they're really exposing themselves um, a lot more when they go to work. And, you know, what I thought was really interesting, several of the business owners expressed that transmission of the virus was scarier to them than their business closing. I mean, hmm. Just to hear that, I mean, that is just really kind of puts a lump in your throat to hear them say that, you know, they care about their community so much that they're really scared about transmission in their towns. Bob Cady, owner of the Coog Bar in Pullman, um, he does temperature checks. He does mandatory customer logs when people come in where they write their huh. name and their phone number when they come in so that they can do contact tracing through the health department if they need that. And he said, you know, people don't want to do it. That's not the type of customer we want. You know, I don't want to put my workers at risk who are mostly college students and risk their, their health and their lives. So he's going above and beyond what is required. But I just thought that was really interesting to hear that he is taking it that seriously. He had recently two staff members come down and contract coronavirus and three more went out because they had to quarantine because they had been in contact with those two others. So he's out five college students who are workers for him. So he's taking this really seriously, as are a lot of other um, business owners. Hmm. All right. That's Emily McCarty. You can read her story and the rest of the Facing the Fallout series at crosscut.com slash focus. Emily, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Mark. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Emily and to Tarian Williamson for coming on the show this week. The episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. 
Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.